Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, genocide debate. This is colonization. This is discrimination. This is genocide. Were the tragic deaths of First Nations women and girls across Canada a genocide? Has the use of that term helped or hurt the reception of the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? And what comes now? Carolyn Bennett, the minister responsible for Crown Indigenous Relations, is here. So is Indigenous activist Pam Palmiter. She weighs in on the scrum. Then, trade dreams. Our goal will be simple. A brand new and truly free interprovincial trade agreement. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is promising to break down barriers for cross-border beer, wine and other interprovincial trade. Sounds good, but is it really that easy? What can he do that other governments have failed to do before. The former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne and the former Industry Minister James Moore, who used to butt heads on this, join us for that debate. And then, Green Surge. From month to month, our fortunes keep improving. The Green Party is climbing in the polls months before the federal election, but could they hold the balance of power in a minority government situation? And where do they stand on other issues besides the environment? Green Party leader Elizabeth May joins us today. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. The systemic racism, the discrimination and the neglect that led to the disappearance and deaths of thousands of Indigenous women and girls across Canada amounted to a genocide. That is according to the National Inquiry's final report. But not everyone agrees that that term actually applies, does it? Among the inquiry's 231 recommendations were sweeping changes to the criminal code, the constitution, and even an overall of how police departments and the justice system handle indigenous cases. But how will the government now respond? Let's find out. Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett joins us. Minister, good to have you here. It's good to be here. A lot of debate about the term genocide. Did Canada commit a genocide? Well, that's what the report found. Uh, we accept the report and we respect the findings and uh, we know there'll be some debate um, amongst the scholars but we have to act on um, making sure that th that we get what was in the terms of reference, the concrete actions to stop this national tragedy. Why did it take so long to use it, that term? The, for the first hours after the report you didn't use the term, the Prime Minister didn't say genocide and finally late in the day he said you know we accept that it's called a genocide. There's a very careful maneuvering going on. What happened there? Why not the initial acceptance? Well I think, I think nobody expected that the Prime Minister um, in receiving the report at that beautiful ceremony would comment on leaks. Um, this was this was very important that we take the time um, to to be able to respond appropriately and and it was very important uh, that that as that we accept the findings of the of uh, of of the inquiry. So you think it was a genocide? I'm is it was it the so was it a genocide or is the genocide ongoing? The prime minister said it was a genocide. Some believe it's still going on. So what's your view as the minister? My is, there, is there a genocide going on in Canada now? Well, in the terms of reference, we asked the commission to look at the historical causes uh, and, and the systemic causes. The commission clearly found uh, that there are many 
evidences in the in history of national policies, government policies, from the book Clearing the Plains to uh, Dr. Bryce's findings in 1904 that were 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 hidden. Uh, the graveyards around residential schools that there are there are many many pieces of evidence that came in to the to this report we now know that women and girls are still going missing and that we actually have to stop this tragedy and that means do what the original yeah. families who came to this hill Gladys Raddick Ber Bernie Williams yeah. when they came here they asked for three things they asked for justice for their loved one support and healing for the families and concrete actions to stop this tragedy so no other family would have to go through that and that's the work we are we began saying that we would never we would never wait for the final report we've begun that work and we're going to continue with all of our partners okay so if they're still going missing there's an assumption that the genocide if that's the term the government accepts is continuing let me just ask you is there a legal implication with that because um, there are, because Canada is a signatory to the United Nations Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of a Crime of Genocide. We've ratified that. And that obliges us to go find the perpetrators and bring them to justice. Will your government now follow that and start finding the genocidaires in Canada? So, and who I are think they? that's, it's complicated. And I think that, as you know, we've received a letter from the OAS that, that they um, were the organization of American states. That's correct, and and that that we be, uh, you know believe in a rules-based international approach, and and the fact that a, a, a public inquiry, a national public inquiry, found this to be a genocide means that the OAS or whatever organization will 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 look at the report, and, and but it is. Sorry, just, just, for, just for the record, I want to get, they don't want to look at the report. They've looked at the report. The organization uh, of states, what they want to do, of American states, is they want to come now do their own investigation. We have ratified a treaty that requires almost like an international court. And some people say, hey, they had the Nuremberg trials after that genocide, uh, the international criminal court after Rwanda. Is that going to happen here, Carolyn Bennett? Well, the the organizations will will do i believe that anybody who had a look at the situation now would have to acknowledge that that we are putting in place the things that the families and the survivors and the commissioners have asked us to do that we didn't wait for this report uh and that we are going to to really do the right thing the c92 which will change the child and family services is is a huge beginning in that Kids need, and both boys and girls, need to grow up as proud Indigenous people. They shouldn't age out of foster care. They shouldn't be removed from their, from their communities to, to a place of serious vulnerability. And we're turning that around now by making sure that, that the kids um, won't be removed from their communities, that the communities will have their, their jurisdiction to look after their children. Yeah. This is going to make a huge difference in that almost every victim, almost every perpetrator that we heard of during the pre-inquiry had some attachment to the child and family services system or child abuse, which then leads to anger, shame, drugs, alcohol, suicide, uh, uh, violence, and incarceration, all of those things. All of those women in prison have their children in foster care. We have got to change this around. And that's what the commission told us.
And just to, to be fair, uh, many indigenous activists have said the foster care system, the number of indigenous kids in foster care actually surpasses the residential schools in some ways, and exactly. it is the new residential school system. So, so I appreciate it, that. It, it, but right. part of this is just a horrific unsolved crimes that these women were not deemed important enough, human enough, because they were indigenous, to get the actual police resources to solve these crimes. What will your government do to, to or fund the RCMP to, to reopen cold cases and bring the criminals to justice and, and, and bring justice to the families of those lost loved ones? So already, I think, in the, um, we set up the family liaison units in all the victim services in all the provinces and territories. That is working extraordinarily well, and the families feel very well supported in, in dealing with the police, in dealing with the justice system, and, and there has been a call to continue that, and we will do that. It is going to be really important, though, that it's not just the police. It, it, it is every aspect of the justice system for when somebody tries to 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 register that their loved ones missing to the quality of the search that's done to the charges that are laid and plea bargain and will all the cold cases be reopened this that's what i'm trying to figure out you know well, there, if, if there's 1800 or sorry 1180 women between 2000 or between um 2013 and 1980 right and that 33 years. Are all those cases being reopened or investigated or the ones that are unsolved? Well, I think that the, there is a new unit that's been st stood up in terms of the RCMP around best practices. Uh, I think that, that again, the, fa the families are dealing with the family liaison units uh, on cases that they feel weren't dealt with properly, and, and uh, we want to seek justice for the families. Uh, last question. Um, there's only a couple months before the next federal election. There are 231 recommendations here. When will we know how many of those your government will accept and try to implement? Because time's short. When are we going to know that? So the important thing, Evan, is that the, the commission asked us to develop a national action plan with our partners, Indigenous, Indigenous women-led, with the provinces and territories. We, we, they would be distinctions-based, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and with regional sensitivities. We will put in place a process right now to be able to get to that process for us to develop a national action plan uh, which is then we'll we'll deal I with win. how they I, I just wonder if this the time's running out like is there any hope that this gets done before the election it doesn't seem that's a reasonable amount of time we will have an action plan when our partners think it's ac adequate that it is what by when and how we will we will work with our partners and we will get to that place um, where we will have a, a roadmap um, for the concrete actions to stop this tragedy. One last question, Minister, out of the more than 1,000 pages. It's pretty painful to read. It's, it's, it was like the Truth and Reconciliation uh, report. Was there one thing that, what struck you the most, the deepest? You've been in this for a long time. What struck you most profoundly in this report? Well, I think that, the, that again, they, there was much more on two-spirited than I think than we expected, and I think the Inuit um, realities, I think that uh, the commissioners um, really heard, and that's what I heard from the families too, that they felt they'd been heard, they could see themselves in that report, and I think that's what I felt. I felt, you know, my friend CJ that ran away from the Picton farm, um, 
you know, she was here with her sister and her mother. I mean, I think in some ways it was, uh, um, as much as the report itself, it was seeing all of these people on the Hill who've been asking for this for a very long time. And, and finally, they felt that they'd been heard. Minister, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Minister Carolyn Bennett. Coming up, is Andrew Shears rosy vision for free trade between the provinces a political fantasy or actually a possibility the former ontario premier kathleen Wynne and the former industry minister james moore will weigh in their old foes on this file stay right here with question period conservative leader andrew Scheer has a message for canada's premiers his party would put an end to backseat driving, let the provinces take full control of the wheel. He's promising to draft what he calls an interprovincial trade agreement, call a first minister's meeting within 100 days, appoint an interprovincial trade minister to his front bench. But is his vision to unite the province, free the beer, get trade going, nothing more than a pre-election platitude? We've heard this from almost every government, Stephen Harper's government, Justin Trudeau's government. And is the growing number of conservative premiers, though, becoming Shear's band of brothers that maybe actually makes this happen. Let's find out. Joining me now, two of Canada's sharper political minds. Kathleen Wynne is the former Ontario Premier and a current Ontario MPP. She's in Toronto. And James Moore is the former Conservative Industry Minister. He's in Vancouver. And both of them, well, I, I'm not going to say you butted heads on this file, but you certainly worked on this file. Welcome to the program, James Moore. Let me start with you. I mean, Andrew Shear is saying something that everybody sort of thinks seems normal like if you can have free trade with other countries why not between provinces is it actually feasible does he actually have a new idea here that you never tried uh, yeah, you can. Um, but the, the biggest obstacle historically is the lack of the willingness of provinces to surrender um, some sovereignty, frankly, <clears throat> to a, an adjudicating body with some teeth who will actually adjudicate the disputes between province to province and from business to, to provinces who may regulate or put up trade barriers between each other. That's the biggest barrier because the case for greater east-west flow of goods, jobs, services and opportunities and investment is a no-brainer. Kathleen, when I love your perspective because you, you yeah. were in this thing. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is it the provinces yeah. that say we don't want to cede authority to this independent body? So James is absolutely right. And James, you were, you were minister when uh, we were actually having this conversation at the, at the Premier's table. Um, and you had put out a number. You had said, you know, there was 50 billion, I think you said $50 billion worth of productivity and, and trade lost because of uh, a lack of a, a decent free trade agreement among, uh, among provinces. So we worked, and interestingly, one of uh, Doug Ford's conservative ministers in Ontario stood up the other day in the legislature and said, Ontario has been a leader on this file. And in fact, James, I think you'll remember, Brad Duguid was our Minister of Economic Development and Trade, and he led the way to a better agreement on internal trade in Canada. We agreed on a dispute um, mechanism, dispute resolution mechanism, which is exactly the thing that you're talking about. Because, Evan, let's face it, there are always going to be issues, whether it's wine or whether it's beer or whether it's, um, you know, specifications on interprovincial trucking. There are going to be issues that are going to come up. And so there has to be a mechanism whereby you can resolve them. We had worked on that as a, as a country, and I think that, you know, there may be some fine-tuning, but you're not going to get any argument from me that we need but how to is Andrew continue Shear to make progress. It? My, my case is, I know well, you guys all worked on it, but what is Andrew yeah. Shear going to bring to the table? Is it the fact that he's got a lineup 
of sort of more conservative premiers. I mean, Justin Trudeau had liberal premiers. They didn't really do much on that. Uh, Kathleen Wynne, is, is, does Andrew Scheer have a real opportunity to kind of finally move this I, ball down the field? You know what I think is actually happening, Evan, is that this is an area where there has been progress made, and he can probably make a bit more progress, but I don't think there's going to be an exponential leap forward. It's still, you know, there's going to be some progress, but because the foundation has already been laid by those previous premiers, he's actually got an opportunity to say, you know, we've done a great thing here. We've we've actually started to use the dispute resolution mechanism. He won't say that the Liberal premiers put in place, but in fact, we were responding to James Moore's kind of um, challenge to us, and it was good. It was good. Okay. James, actually, you pushed us, right? Uh, J James Moore, I, I mean, I look at, you know, Alberta and B.C., I mean, they're ready to turn off the taps on, beer, on wine, on oil. It doesn't sound like there's a movement of freer trade right now. It's as one province is using trade, frankly, as a stick on other issues. What does that tell you? <clears throat> well, we, we have to remind ourselves that, that four provinces came together in Charlottetown in 1864 and decided to create a federal government. We have a confederation that is very decentralized in terms of its power. I, I retreat uh, often on this file to Peter Lougheed, who said when he was premier, I'm an Albertan and a proud Albertan, but I'm a Canadian first. And we need more premiers in this country and more provincial leaders, again, who are prepared to surrender some of that sovereignty and to reach out and do that. And I hope that, look, Andrew Scheer, there's no question, has obviously a great relationship with Premier Moe and Premier Kenny and Premier Ford and others uh, around the country. Uh, and hopefully we can draw and move forward on this. But, you know, the, I think the real weaponizing force behind all this that actually may cause premiers to do what... Premier Wynne has, has described what I, what I believe is the biggest obstacle, is if, frankly, the USMCA doesn't move forward and the U.S. Congress is intransigent and won't allow the New Deal to pass, if Donald Trump decides to abrogate NAFTA as kind of hitting the nuclear button to try to uh, push this yeah. process forward or to, or to do everything he can, then we're going to be standing here in Canada where 75% of our export market is to the United States, and that relationship is going to be untenable, in rising tensions yeah. with China, an uncertain situation in Europe. Um, we need to get on with it. You know, let's get Canadian goods moving east and west. It is, it is indefensible for us to keep doing this. Uh, meantime, Kathleen, but, but I, yeah, go ahead, Kathleen. Uh, yeah, Evan, I just, I just think that we have to be, we have to be realistic about what exactly is uh, the problem here. Yes, I agree. BC and Alberta are in a very rough period right now. I mean, obviously, they've got, they've got a huge issue that um, looks. You know, it looks intractable at this point. But there are a million other things that provinces uh, ha can tackle and, and are looking at every single day, Evan. And because there is a dispute mechanism there, it is possible to make progress. I hope that happens. And I, I fully expect that it will because when the premiers sit at the table, to James's point, when they sit together, you'd be hard-pressed to be able to tell who's what party stripe because... It may, you know, it may be that with the, uh, the prime minister there, it becomes more obvious. But with the premiers there, they are all looking out for making sure that business in their province well, is thriving. And that's what it's about. All right, I got to leave it there. A fascinating uh, discussion. I always am a little skeptical about the promise of the big provincial breakthrough. It's only been 150-odd years in the making. Uh, Kathleen Wynne and James, were great to have both of you on the program. Coming up. Thanks, Evan. Thank Take you. care, James. Coming up, could Canada see its first green government, or more likely, could they hold the balance of power? What would a green government actually look like? They are actually growing in the polls. It's time to take a new look 
at what Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, has to say outside of just environmental questions. She joins us next right here on Question Period. Well, we saw the orange wave back in 2011 when the NDP suddenly surged to official opposition status. Could 2019 bring a green wave? Look, no one's predicting a green version of the Jack Layton phenomenon yet, but the Greens are growing at the expense of the NDP, particularly in B.C. and the Maritimes. They've pulled off a big by-election win in B.C. recently. They picked up provincial seats in PEI, Ontario. They even hold the balance of power in British Columbia. Can they translate this momentum into votes in the upcoming general election? Could the Green Party leader end up holding the balance of power in a minority government? The Greens have been at the forefront of the climate debate, but what else do they stand for? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Green Party leader, Elizabeth May. Uh, great to have you back on the program as polls are showing that there's a bit of a green wave. Is the Green Party genuinely opposed to every new oil and every natural gas pipeline and project? Absolutely. The first rule of holes is stop digging. There is no room whatsoever in the global carbon budget for any new drilling offshore, any new, uh, any new wells anywhere. And frankly, we also need to ban fracking across Canada. There, th this, is a, this is what's required. It's not going to be easy. And there's, there's ways to make it, uh, uh, the transition as smooth as possible, but it, it's not optional. In your view, do indigenous people have a veto over natural resource projects, like even hydroelectric? And you know what they talk about is free and prior consent. Does consent mean a veto? If you say we're going to build a pipeline, what does it take for us as the colonial power of Canada to make you agree? That's not free <laughs> prior informed consent. That's coercion. So yes, we believe in the principles of UNDRIP. Yes, we believe that real But what's the answer? Does consent mean a veto? In the case of territorial rights of, a, of an established, if you're dealing with indigenous First Nations under the, under the Indian Act or we're dealing with traditional First Nations governance structures, such as when we're talking about what happened recently with, with elders, I think the answer is yes, free and prior informed consent means exactly what those words mean, which is you can't say that we're going ahead despite the fact that you're saying no. And right yeah, but now, does, most the, the, the sorry, but Elizabeth May, consent, does it consent mean, I'm just trying, trying to say, does consent mean everybody has to agree? Because there are elected chiefs that agree on a natural gas pipeline and, and unelected chiefs who don't. I'm just trying to figure out what's your threshold of consent. Can anybody, uh, any indigenous nation say you don't have my consent and that is functionally a legal veto, yes or no? The issue of hereditary chiefs in governance structures that have already been recognized, as that one was in the delegate decision by the Supreme Court of Canada, they have an absolute right on their territory to say no, absolutely. Okay, Elizabeth May, a lot of people want to know what else you stand for, so let's do a series of rapid fire at least to get the outlines. Would you ban Huawei from participating in building Canada's 5G network, the next generation wireless? Yes. Would a green government make balancing the budget a priority? Would you actually balance the budget? Yes, we are a party that believes in fiscal responsibility and we are going through the exercise of making sure our numbers add up. I can commit to you this, Evan, that when our budget, when our platform is released, it will include a full budget that will have 
been already reviewed by the Parliamentary Budget Office, and then we'll be able to say exactly when we can balance the budget, with what revenue and with what spending, so that we are able to demonstrate fiscal responsibility. But it is a priority. Would you attempt at all or do anything on the abortion issue, which suddenly seems to come back? I know it's come back in the States. Would you let your MPs vote with their conscience on that? What would your view on that be? Well, the Green Party of Canada does, has a policy that actually prohibits whipped votes. So there is no question to me as leader, would I let MPs vote their conscience? That's the job of a Green MP is to represent their constituents. But I don't know of any, anybody within the Green Party uh, currently running, myself foremost as a feminist, there is no way we will retreat one inch on a woman's right to a legal, safe abortion. Uh, and I, for those, those jurisdictions south of the border, I wonder if they think Handmaid's Tale was, a, was an owner's manual to how to wreck democracy. This is, not, this is hmm. scary stuff going on. We will not accept a single, reach, a single inch of, of uh, retreating on a woman's right, any woman, right. based on a choice between the woman and her doctor for a safe legal abortion. Uh, you've already said that if there's a minority government, you would love to work with another party to prop up a minority government. Let's... If there was a liberal minority government and they came to a Green Party for support, A, would you support them and what would you demand in return from the liberals? Listen, the, you, you, the, the question has so many hypotheticals. I've got to step back, Evan, because I've already been misquoted in, from talking about the conventions of parliamentary democracy that the party that was in power gets first crack at forming government. I don't, ha I don't go into this election with any preference for who we, with whom we will work. We will work with any party that's prepared to make sure that we arrive at no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius global average temperature increase above what we had before the Industrial Revolution, because if we fail to meet that, nothing else we do will matter much because we'll ha be in a situation of climate breakdown that threatens human civilization. So I believe all hands on deck, and I believe we get better decisions when all parties Right. are capable of setting aside partisanship and working together. Yeah, but so, they're, they're, but so far the main, you know, the liberals and the conservatives don't have the same, uh, same climate plan as you. Would that mean that you will not work with them? Exactly. Unless they're prepared to, to ensure that our children have a livable world, if we're in a, we, we will just not... Oh, uh, so you wouldn't prop them. Oh, that's interesting. So you wouldn't do that. No. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a do-or-die do scenario, Evan. We are here as responsible adults looking at the science that tells us very clearly the window on survival for our kids closes not in 2030, because 2030 is when we have to, uh, to arrive at 60% reductions below current levels. So if you're going to get there by 2030, you actually have to have started serious transformational policies before the next election. So incrementalism is out and doing deals with people just for power when our children's future is at stake is not something I will ever do. In the last election in 2015, you had great hopes for someone like Justin Trudeau. Uh, you've seen what's happened over the last three and a half, almost four years. Have you lost your ability to trust the prime minister? I would never, I mean, it's, it's back to trust and verify. Uh, the, the promises that were made by liberals that I fully believed in, I voted in favor of the speech from the throne because it said 2015 will be the last election held under first-past-the-post. It said we will repair the environmental assessment legislation and restore it, which they didn't do. It said we will have ambitious climate targets and we will get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, which they haven't done. So trust is a question now of prove it. 
but that doesn't mean I still feel, you know, basically I, I'm an odd politician in that I can tell you with a straight face that I'm friends with Justin Trudeau. I, I'm friends with Jagmeet Singh, although we don't know each other as well as I know Justin. I've worked with Andrew Scheer for years, particularly when he was speaker. Friends with Max Bernier. I mean, honestly. So I can work with anyone, but I'm not going to write anyone a blank check because right. the future is too important to base it on trust <clears throat> with people who break their promises. All right, I got to leave it there. We will find out where the fortunes of the Greens go. Thank you very much, Elizabeth May. But coming up on this program is Canada committing a genocide against Indigenous women and girls, as the National Inquiry has determined. The Scrum is next. Our special guest is Indigenous activist Pam Palmer. Stay right here with Question Period. Canada committed a genocide. That was the damning conclusion of the National Inquiry looking into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But that has set off a furious debate. Is the term appropriate in this case? Does it open up Canada for legal recourse or is it an accurate term to describe Canada's treatment of Indigenous people? And what will the explosive report mean for the government's reconciliation agenda as we head into the next election? To find out, we bring in the scrum, Tonda McCharles, senior reporter with the Toronto Star, Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief, Craig Oliver, a CTV's chief political commentator, and our special guest today is Indigenous rights activist and chair of the Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University and a regular on this show, Pam Palmiter in Toronto. Good to see all of you. Pam, let's start with you. Um, the term genocide obviously has been very controversial, the use of it, people like Romeo Dallaire. Uh, who served at the heart of the Rwandan genocide, said it just doesn't apply to Canada. It puts Canada on the same level as the genocidaires in Rwanda or Nazi Germany. He said it's not helpful. What's your take? Is it the appropriate term to use this slow-motion genocide? Well, of course it is, because it's a legal finding of fact. They had thousands of people testify, experts, they did their own independent research and legal analysis, and that's their legal finding of fact. It's not academic theory, it's not pontification. A tribunal, or uh, this commission has already found it to be genocide. Um, and, and keep in mind, state perpetrators of genocide all over the world are the last peoples to admit it's genocide, and they always scoff at it. They're literally, you know, dragged kicking and streaming, uh, screaming to accountability forums. So, of course, nobody wants this to be, but there's no debate about it. There was an investigation. It was a finding, and it's consistent with the TRC. Keep in mind, the TRC said what Canada's done to Indigenous peoples is cultural, physical, and biological genocide. And, and, so this and, and, isn't news. And a former Supreme Court of Canada Chief Justice Beverly, Beverly McLaughlin used that term and at the time it was shocking to a lot of people. I confess when I first heard yeah. the leaks of the report saying that the inquiry was going to use that word, I, I thought on what basis, what's the justification and, and my biggest concern on Monday was this gives a lot of people a reason to turn away from it frankly it's a flashpoint but you know when you read um, the the explanation and the legal justification they're talking about a modern updated definition legal definition legal well social definition yeah. really describing what happened it does have legal implications I actually now think that this is the start of a really important debate I think uh, for myself uh, I find it a painful uh, fact if I have to uh, start acknowledging that my country is a criminal nation. I mean, I think we can talk about endemic uh, systemic racism. We can talk about poverty. We can talk about a justice system that has gone really wrong in this case. 
but really, is this, uh, does this meet uh, the standard of the Holocaust, or particularly Rwanda, where there were, what, almost a million Tutsis murdered in the space of eight months? Uh, and where Romeo Dallaire, who uh, sp will spend the rest of his life regretting all of this, uh, doesn't believe it meets that standard. Uh, so, you know, there are implications here uh, for us as a country in terms of our international reputation. Uh, I just think we have to think a little bit more about whether or not we have done something that is criminal, which might even hold our leaders up to criminal prosecution. Joyce, well, I mean, uh, Justin Trudeau sort of delayed and delayed, and then he finally said, no, I accept the term genocide, and now, of course, there's a, a debate. Was he right to accept that term? What do you think? Well, you know, this is a, a, a commission of inquiry that started under him, so I don't think he had a choice to accept it or not, but I'm a little bit like uh, a Craig here. Right. Um, I think it is. It, it was a sadly brilliant term to use, mm -hmm. because we are still talking oh. about it. And I think that sadly, again, we would not have been talking about the findings of this commission because Canada has committed sins of action and sins of omission. And our sins of omission was we've had commissions of inquiry before and just sort of cast them aside. This is forcing us as a nation to not cast it aside because of the term that was used there. So in a way, I'm not sure, like Craig, that this is a right term, but it certainly is the term well, that is forcing us to come to grips with the treatment of indigenous people over the over the, the decades. Pam, I, I know you want to, like, I mean, that one argument is yeah. that this was a strategic use to get people yes. to finally pay to attention, and others say, no, it's an actual legal use. What's your interpretation of that? Yeah. Well, it's legal, so first of all, there's no debate. The findings already been had. Second of all, the standard isn't Holocaust. The standard is defined in the UN Convention, which can include mass killing, but it's also about the forcible transfer of children from native people to non-native people. It's also forced sterilizations in which Canada's in litigation. It's also creating the conditions of life that will bring about the destruction of a group in whole or in part. You only have to look at First Nations. It's about causing physical and mental harm. I mean, Canada's literally guilty of all of those things, and the standard isn't Holocaust. This is a legal finding. There's nothing strategic about the rape, torture, murder, disappearances, human trafficking of indigenous women and girls. But the, this but, is, in fact, the reality. But the standard is, as I understand it, that the leaders of the nation were complicit, that they planned it, that they ordered murders. And we're not just talking about the Holocaust. Maybe I went a little far by using that example. But there's Rwanda, there's Cambodia, there are other examples. But I don't think that I they, don't think the I leaders in this case were personally that's implicated not the in making decisions that led to people's well, deaths. And in any event, the inquiry report does not say those were not genocides, and this is. So, so, so well, in a sense, that, that's, a, yes. that's almost a different argument. But look, there are really um, much more brilliant legal minds than us discussing and having active debates about whether it qualifies. I just want to bring it back to as a political story well, that's right it. now. I want to quickly the political implications. Yeah, so of the political bit. story of this is huge. The um, you know the indications we've gotten from the government is that they're not going to have their action plan really until sometime before the end of their mandate. What's that? Before the writ drops. And we haven't. We've heard both the Liberals and uh, the Conservatives say right. they're going to bring forward an action plan. But we haven't had, for example, Mr. Shear address this question. How do 
did he view the report? He has not answered one question on that all week. So I think this now launches a huge political debate about how are we going to deal with the, the, the actual recommendations. Right. And, and I'm wondering if we're all like discussing semantics here when in fact there are actions that have to be taken. You know, there are people, there are investigations that have to happen, there are cold cases, there are families out there who want to know what happened to their mothers, their daughters, their sisters, and we're sitting here debating exactly. semantics. Now, I know it's an important legal term. I get that. I get all that. But what, what, what the purpose of this whole thing was is to find solutions. So okay. perhaps beyond... It's about words, and words have meaning and okay. words have influence. Okay, Pam, last word to you real quick. What happens now? Will there be prosecutions? Will there be investigations? Will there be opening up cold cases? What's the fallout? Well, my hope is that they will actually act on the recommendations that are contained in the National Inquiry, because this is what all of us want. This is what Indigenous women and girls want. They want to be safe in this country. They don't want to be traded. They don't want to be trafficked. They don't want to be raped, tortured, and abused, murdered, and disappeared. And so these recommendations are having a comprehensive, coordinated national strategic action plan with all levels of government, federal, provincial, territory, municipal, and indigenous governments, led by indigenous women, by the way, to actually protect indigenous women and girls, to address all of the root causes, and first and foremost, to make sure that they have basic human rights, because that's what this was about. Canada knowingly purposefully coordinated and through its laws and policies and practices knowingly denied and breached their basic human rights to life and liberty right. security of the person and everything else all right i gotta leave it there i think though what the the authors of this inquiry said read the report i know a lot of you got strong reactions it's a long and powerful report i urge you Read the report. Pam Palmer, great to have you back on the program. As always, the rest of the scrum will stay around. Coming up, what's a fair punishment for a conservative MP who quoted the manifesto of a mass killer in New Zealand? To talk about that and to debate political leaders marching in pride parades. The scrum returns with special guest former immigration minister Chris Alexander. Stay right here with question period. I find the notion that one's race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation would make anyone in any way superior or inferior to anyone else absolutely repugnant. And if there's anyone here who disagrees with that, there's the door. You're not welcome here. So that was Conservative leader Andrew Scheer's message last month, but it was quickly put to the test after Conservative MP Michael Cooper told a Muslim activist at the Justice Committee he should be ashamed of his comments about the far right. And then Mr. Cooper quoted from the manifesto of the suspected Christchurch mosque shooter, the mass killer. Scheer then stripped Mr. Cooper of his seat in the Justice Committee. But does the punishment go far enough? Some liberals want to boot it from the caucus. Should Mr. Cooper be expelled from the party or not? Uh, meantime, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has announced he won't march in any gay pride parades this year. How does that square with his message of inclusiveness. To talk about all that, the Scrum is back. Tana McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver, and our special guest this round is the former Conservative Immigration Minister, Chris Alexander. Uh, great to have everyone back, Mr. Alexander. Always good to start uh, with you. Do you think Andrew Shear's punishment for Michael Cooper's actions warrant just a, you know, what he did, kicking him off the Justice Committee, or after he made that big speech that if you have any hate in your heart, here's the door, should he have taken tougher stance? Well, I, I think it's a, 
it's a serious punishment being removed from the committee, and it was a serious mistake. Um, no one in elected office or any position of influence should be advertising, uh, become a spokesperson for any manifesto of uh, extremists, whether they're anti-Muslim extremists, as in this case, or jihadist groups, terrorist groups, uh, groups advocating violence in any form. And so uh, I, th I think the punishment had to happen. Uh, I think it's appropriate in the circumstances. That said, we need to look at the bigger picture here. Uh, we are in a polarizing political environment, not just in Canada, but around the world, where opposing sides uh, endeavor to identify their adversary, the people they don't agree with, with the most extreme views on the other side. And you know, Cooper is not identifying with this madman who committed a huge crime in New Zealand. Uh, just as no one in Canada, right. I don't think, in a position of responsibility, is identifying with extreme mm -hmm. positions. So let's no, the, and the, bring but, the middle back into focus. Right, but I guess the concern with that was that Mr. Cooper himself didn't know where the middle was, and in bringing those words uh, shows that he was prepared to use them, but I think he was responding to a witness using the word conservative commentators, and then boom. Uh, it won't surprise you, perhaps, to know that while uh, you know he was punished, and some people on the outside feel he m ought to have been punished more, some of his critics, uh, uh, Mr. Cooper's critics, that is, um, he's a very well-liked caucus member. And there was a lot of support within caucus, actually, for him. And he apologized to his conservative colleagues for uh, embarrassing the right. party. And so, you know, on that basis alone, he got a lot of goodwill amongst his colleagues. So certainly, I think Chris has hit something on the head here. This is a politically, very politically charged environment right now. And uh, there is no room for slip-ups. But it, uh, go ahead. it was a chance for Scheer to use that door, however, That's uh, right. after the speech he made. Yes. He, and he could have just kicked him out of caucus, take him back if he's reelected. Uh, I think he need to drive home in some dramatic way that excellent, admirable speech Sheer made. Joyce. Well, you know, I think what's worrisome is that he actually came to the committee with the manifesto of the alleged killer of Christchurch. So, you know, you wonder why would you, were you prepared to? What were you going to do with that? before the witness even started speaking. But I agree with, uh, with Tonda. It was the conservative commentators part that irritated the MP, uh, Michael Cooper. But what is even more worrisome, I think, is how they decided to erase it from the, record, it from the record of the committee. Now, that is something we should all pay. Because his mistake is, is, is a mistake. It's obviously a mistake. Obviously, you know, it was a slap on the hands because, you know, right. the committee's going to sit for another four weeks. But erasing something from a record and rewriting, basically, you know, deciding that, oh, this is too offensive, we're going to take it off the record, that is a very dangerous thing. All right, uh, let me talk about this uh, pride parades. Andrew Shear's not going to march in any pride parade. Uh, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, of course, they are. There's a long tradition of this. Some premiers don't do it, like Doug Ford. Uh, but Andrew Shear says, look, I still support LGBTQ rights. Is he sending mixed signals to voters if he can't literally walk the walk? Chris Alexander. I, I think he, his message is very clear on this front, uh, and it's the right message. The Conservative Party represents all of Canada uh, in its caucus, in its membership, and that includes, in this country, a very strong and 
well, you know, strong, strongly voiced LGBT well, why, why does community. It, well, one way but, to voice but, it is to just show up and march. Like, I just don't, like, what's but, the, how do you say I, I strongly support you, but I'm busy in every single parade? No, it's, it's, it's a missed opportunity, I think. Uh, and, and, and here, we as conservatives and Canadians as a whole have to recognize that not only is this an important group that is facing tough odds uh, and, and discrimination and all it's kinds of mistreatment still in Canada, but even more so around the world. I don't know. I don't Canada know has leadership. Canada I, has leadership to play on this, I, I don't know on why this front. Sheer is and so, these are. Well, why is she so worried about the hardcore, breast bound conservatives? They're not going anywhere anyway. So why didn't he do it and get some credit for his openness and generosity, and then the others will understand and that the, he had it. It's much more than a missed opportunity. I'm sorry. It is a statement. It is a bold statement. Let's face it. Let's not try to make this look like anything else. He's not marching in the pride. It is clear what the message is to the community, and that's it. It is not even subtle. There's no opportunity missed here. It is a message. And it should be received for what it is. And, 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 and the worst part of the end of the serial killer in the gay village in Toronto, right? right? We've had this entire. Look, and, and so, so this is a very poignant is, issue. This is a statement that means a lot to LGBTQ people. Yes. It speaks to them. It, yeah. reinfor it reinforces and affirms their value as human beings and their equal value. And I'm sorry if you're auditioning to be the prime minister of this country, show up in March. Yeah. All right, I got to leave it there. Chris Alexander, Tony McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver, thanks, of course, for watching. Before uh, we go, we want to honor the Canadians who 75 years ago landed on Juneau Beach in Normandy as part of the D-Day invasion and who then spent many, many bloody months fighting to liberate Europe from the tyranny of the Nazis. Their sacrifice and their bravery was honored this week in Normandy by the Prime Minister, U.S. President Donald Trump, Queen Elizabeth, many other leaders and many of those veterans, many in their 90s, and it is because of their sacrifice that we are able to have these kind of political debates in freedom today. And we honor their sacrifice very deeply, and we will be back here in seven short days. Thank you, and take good care.